In this lecture, I'm going to be looking at the most significant arguments against the problem of evil. And I say that the problem of evil is the most significant argument against the existence of God, because it doesn't seem to me, at any rate, at all plausible to say that God, were he to exist, would have been under an obligation to create no universe whatsoever. And hence, there can't be, if you like, a cosmological argument against the existence of God. To whom would he have been under this obligation? Ex hypothesis, there would have been nobody else around, and he could hardly be said to have harmed himself by bringing others into existence. So there aren't going to be any arguments for the existence, uh, sorry, for the non-existence of God from indeterminate experiences of God. And I've, in effect, dismissed the possibility of any argument against the existence of God from pure categories a priori, i.e. any argument which would seek to establish the incoherence of the concept of God, in my first few lectures, where I argued that there is a God made sense. So, if that's right, the only sort of argument against the existence of God that's left to think about is going to be some version of an argument that starts from determinant experience, that starts, in other words, from some feature of the universe that there's prima facie reason to suppose God would have wanted not to create. A feature that is, in other words, what we might call evil, if we allow the word evil a rather stretched sense to include anything that is in any sense bad. Uh, so it's illegal, but we just stood on a plug this morning, it's illegal, but... Uh, the weather isn't exactly to my liking. So it's a much more stretched sense uh, than would ordinarily be the case where these things might be considered inconveniences or even bad things, but partly evil. The problem of evil, then. The problem of evil may be presented as follows. And this, as indeed what I've just said, is on your handout. One, if the will of God, he would be omnipotent and perfectly good. Two, an omnipotent being would ensure, sorry, could ensure there was no evil. Three, a perfectly good being would wish to ensure there was no evil, and so forth. If there were a God, he would ensure there was no evil. Five, there is evil, and therefore six, there is no God. Okay, as I say, that's on the handout. Presented thus, it's a deductively valid argument. The premises don't just make the conclusion, number six, probable, they make it certain. So the theist, committed as he or she is, to deny uh, number six, must deny one or more of the premises. Number one is a definitional claim, which, as we've seen, is true of the first default, so the first can't uh, deny number one. Number four is a sub-conclusion, it follows from one, two, and three, so the first can't deny number four, unless he or she is more basically denied uh, one or more of one, two, and three. Number five is pretty obviously correct. Um, if you think you don't believe it, ask the person sitting next to you to punch you as hard as they can. And that will soon change your mind. Remember that I'm taking evil in a broad sense to include anything that is in any sense and to any extent bad. And as such, physical pain, even if it has some pedagogic function, is certainly in itself a bad and evil. So we're down to numbers two and three. Can Fez deny number two? No, I suggest they cannot. On Fezum, number two must be true. Fez, you'll recall, see God as perfectly free in choosing to create a world. He didn't have created this or indeed any other world. And given this, Fairs are committed to thinking that God could have ensured that there was no evil simply by not creating anything. Had he not created anything, then he would have been the sole existent thing, and being himself perfect good, he would therefore have ensured there was no evil. So, we're down to number three, I suggest. Do, do, do come in, hand that sort of back. We're down to number three, I suggest. The Fairs only hope is to deny that premise three is true. But, unfortunately, three looks pretty plausible too. Let me give an example to illustrate how plausible number three is. Suppose that as you walked in uh, this morning, you found me holding a small screaming child on this table whilst pushing a blunt carving knife into the mother. 
surely the only reasonable explanation of my behaviour would be that I was extremely evil. As surely as you can know that you shouldn't stand idly by and watch me knifing this child, so surely you could know that I was to some extent evil because I was knifing the child in the first place. Now, if there was a God, then in virtue of his omniscience and his omnipresence, he is in effect standing idly by whenever anything like this happens. Surely then, if there was a God, he'd have intervened already when anybody was about to do anything evil, such as knifing children. So the obviousness of God's non-existence cannot be any less uh, than the obviousness of the conjunctive fact that children are sacred of knife and that we should try to stop that sort of thing happening. So it looks as if the problem of evil is a deductively sound argument from the non-existence of God, or can be constructed in this way, the deductive soundness of which is obvious, and certainly more obvious than is its conclusion that there is no God. In other words, it looks as if the problem of evil meets our standards, as established in an earlier lecture, if you remember, our criteria for being a good argument for believing that there is no God. Okay. Fortunately uh, for the first, premise three is not on closer inspection as plausible as it at first seems. In fact, there are occasions when people allow, and indeed cause suffering, which they could have prevented, and we don't consider them any the worse, morally speaking, for doing so. Consider this possibility. On finding me in the room, holding this child down, while stabbing him or her, you rush over, intent on stopping me, this would only be morally reasonable. Wait, I cry, don't intervene. This child's appendix is about to burst, and if it does so before I've removed it, the result will be an agonising and slow death from blood poisoning from a child. Sadly, there's no anaesthetic around, and the only implement available to perform this emergency appendectomy, if the child's life is to be saved, a necessary emergency appendectomy, is this blood carving knife, which I am using to the best of my abilities, and I have medical training, so it's not reckless of me to engage in this procedure, which I'm using to the best of my abilities on this child. So I have time to say all this to you as you rush over. <laughs> it's my thought experiment, so you allow me now again a little bit of license. Suppose you were justifiably certain that what I was saying was true. Then I think your assessment of my character will change very radically. Rather than seeing the fact that I was holding the child on the table whilst pushing this blunt carving knife into him or her as evidence that I was evil, you'd see my uh, doing all this thing as evidence that I was indeed good, indeed morally uh, courageous, perhaps. My sticking a blunt carving knife into a child wouldn't show me to be less than perfectly good if I was doing it as the least bad way of generating a greater good that the child live a long and healthy life uh, thereafter. So the first can plausibly maintain that premise 3 is not quite correct. It's initially plausible because it's close to something that is correct. Something along the lines of a perfectly good person would wish to ensure there was no evil unless that evil was the least evil means or an inescapable feature of the least evil means to a greater good. Something like that might be true, uh, probably is true. Uh, but premise 3 is stated is not correct in itself. And the first can therefore justifiably deny one of the premises of the original problem of evil argument as uh, and, uh, explaining its prima facie plausibility uh, by it's being close to something, uh, this other principle, that is indeed true. So thus the first can meet the initial challenge of the problem of evil. The proponent of the problem of evil is, of course, uh, not finished yet. For the principle that it seems the first will have to accept to explain the prima facie plausibility of premise 3, might it seem to be used in a modified but still valid argument for the non-existence of God. The proponent of the form of evil's initial attack, if you like, is felt that he or she has a uh, possibility to regroup and attack again. Before we see how the Fez might best dig in to defend himself or herself from such an attack, 
I want to map a little bit more closely the conceptual territory on this, which this battle will be fought. And there are two features of the landscape in particular that I want to draw to our attention at this stage. Firstly, I want to describe the sort of evils and resulting goods that Fez might find easiest to defend as being ones of the sort that God would, or good in principle anyway, be morally justified in allowing. And secondly, I want to introduce the notion of a good compensating, as I'm going to put it, or an evil suffered. Firstly, then, what sorts of evils and resulting goods might God be justified in allowing? Everyone will agree that there are lots of good ends that we find. Ourselves unable to achieve uh, except by means that are evil. And remember, here I'll be just to include bad, so it isn't um, uh, particularly um, anything presupposed about ends justifying evil means here in the more usual um, sense of evil. So everyone agrees that we humans often find ourselves unable to achieve um, good ends except by evil means, and that sometimes we're justified in bringing about these good ends by those means. The uh, case I just gave would be an example. However, God is not finite, he's infinite. So surely, someone might argue, he could achieve any good end without needing to go through any evil means to get there. Even if there are goods that justify us in allowing or even initiating evils as means for them, such as the good of giving his child a long and healthy life by performing this emergency appendectomy, even if there are uh, good ends that justify us in allowing or initiating evil means to them, there are no goods that could justify God in allowing any evils as means to them. So how should the best, best prepare to meet this uh, line of argument? Well, we've seen in an earlier lecture that omnipotence doesn't entail the ability to do the logically or metaphysically impossible. So the first can best prepare, and the is only prepared to meet this challenge, by finding some things which can be recognised as goods and which he or she can plausibly maintain that it's logically or metaphysically impossible that one might enjoy to the extent that we enjoy them without suffering from evil that accompanies them to the extent that we suffer from that evil. If there were such goods, then not even an omnipotent God could reasonably be expected to bring it about that we benefited from those goods to the extent that we do without suffering from the necessary accompanying evils to the extent that we do. Now, I think there are some uh, goods, and I want to discuss just one of them, but it's the one that's most usually discussed, the good we enjoy of having the freedom to make important choices. Consider the following situation. A friend of yours has applied for two jobs, one with Oxfam and one with British American Tobacco. You know that Oxfam works for good, and British American Tobacco works for evil. Don't ask me how you know this, let me just suppose for the sake of the argument that you do. Furthermore, you know that your friend won't really be truly happy working for British American Tobacco. Although they pay more, in the end, your friend will end up having a midlife crisis if they work for them. By contrast, you know that if your friend works for Oxfam, although they'll earn less, uh, they'll ultimately be a lot happier. Now, your friend, not having this uh, level of insight into these companies or into their own psychology, has made applications for both positions. As I say, and has now gone off on a short holiday leaving you with authority in their absence to open their post and a contact telephone number should you need to get in touch with them uh, should they need to make any decisions. So it is that one day you open two letters, one letter from Oxfam and another letter from British American Tobacco, each of which offers your friend the job of their respective organisations, jobs which your friend needs to phone to accept within 24 hours. A failure to phone and accept the job offer will be taken as a rejection of the job offer and the job will be offered to someone else. So your friend will, it seems, need to make a choice between these two offers. It occurs to you, though, that you could tell your friend simply about the contents of the Oxfam letter and just fail to mention this letter from British American Tobacco. 
If you do this, your friend will be so excited about the Oxfam letter, they'll never ask whether there's any other letter, they'll just phone and accept the Oxfam job, which, as you know, will ultimately be in their best interest. So let me suppose that you know there's no way you could ever be found out in the news. You have a choice yourself, then. Preserve your friend's freedom in making a decision about an important matter in their professional life. <coughs> you preserve their freedom by telling them all the facts. Or you remove your friend's freedom in making that decision over an important matter by failing to mention all the facts. So what should you do? Well, I think there's at least something to be said in favour of your telling your friend the facts and thus preserving their freedom. If so, it shows that there's something valuable about freedom. Freedom is indeed a good. It's also very plausible, I think, to suppose that the good of freedom is directly proportional to the importance of a choice at hand. To see this, suppose that on the same day as you open the letters from Oxfam and British American Tobacco, you also open a letter uh, to your friend, asking them to phone if they'd like to prevent themselves being transferred from the circulation list for hard copies of Practical Tiddlymaker, the newsletter that they subscribe to, the circulation list uh, for soft copies of the same publication that is derived by email attachments from there. Would there be much to be said against your making an executive decision on your friend's behalf here? Well, I think not. To remove your friend's freedom to decide whether or not to continue to receive hard copies of practical tiddlywinker is not to remove from them anything near as good as you removed if you removed from them the freedom to choose which career path to take. So freedom is a good, and it's good in proportion to the importance of the choice at hand. So now we must ask, could one be free to choose between importantly different options in a world without evil? And the answer to this is pretty obvious, that, well, no, one could not, of logical necessity. As you recall, I'm using the word evil in the broadest sense to include anything that is to any extent in any respect bad. What important differences are there between actions that are not important, because one or more of these actions is substantially better than the other, or, uh, or one or more of the other, this other or this, these others thus being to some extent, and in some respect, bad, i.e. evil. So it is, I suggest, that the good of freedom can, of logical necessity, only be instantiated in a world of evils, and it can only exist in proportion to the evils in that world. Not even an omnipotent God could be expected to bring about a world where we enjoy the good of freedom to the extent that we do, without suffering evils to the extent that we do. Now, not all evils are caused by the free choices of creatures, as well as these, what are usually called moral evils. They are also they usually called natural evils, as well as murders that are deaths due to a disease and accident. Can natural evils be seen as a means to, or as a foreseen but unintended consequence of a means to the greater good of freedom? My argument will be that they can be, that natural evils are logically necessary results of free creatures living in a world governed by natural laws, and that natural laws are necessary for there to be a world with free agents able to affect one another for good or evil, i.e. to have the sort of freedom that I've argued, um, using these analogies, uh, we suggest, uh, suggest that we think it's good to have. Okay. Suppose that Andy wishes Bob to suffer from ten minutes of excruciating agony, and he decides freely to act on that wish. Andy uh, will either succeed, he'll get his wish, in which case Bob will find that natural facts less than perfectly serve his interests, Bob will find himself without enough power to stop Andy, or Bob will be able to block Andy's malevolent intention, in which case Andy will have his interests less than perfectly served by natural facts. Andy will find he doesn't have enough power to harm Bob, his freedom will be curtailed. If one agent is to have the freedom to choose to harm another, then that agent must have more power than the other. And the fact that one agent has more power than another must be the result of facts which are not themselves within the power of those agents to determine, i.e. they must be natural facts. 
One can say, then, that natural evils are foreseen but unintended necessary consequence of creating a world with natural laws, natural laws being necessary for there to be free agents able to affect one another. Natural laws provide the arena, if you will, within which agents may freely interact, and a necessary accompaniment uh, to that arena are results of natural evils. So we can extend free will defence to cover natural evils too. As always, we no need to believe everything I say, uh, other than uh, the only claim I insist you believe is that we no need to believe anything other than that that I say. Anyway, but perhaps whilst freedom of this sort is a good, it's not good enough to justify the sorts of natural evils and moral evils that we actually have in this world. To understand this book requires one to consider whether or not goods such as freedom do or do not compensate, as one might put it, for the evils that are necessary for them. And this brings me to the second feature of the conceptual landscape that I want to describe, compensation. The notion of a good compensating uh, for an evil is a rather tricky one, I admit, and it's not just tricky for the epistemic reason that it might not always be obvious to us whether or not a good really does compensate for an evil. It's also tricky because the compensating good may not be the same sort of good as the evil is evil, and thus may not be said to outweigh it in any even in principle quantifiable way. Uh, this would be easier to understand if I give another example, I think. Suppose you have a career choice to make. You could become a sculptor, or you could become a painter. Suppose also that you know, and don't ask me how you know this, that if you choose to become a sculptor, you'll become a truly great sculptor, par with Phidias or Henry Moore. Then you'll suffer from the occasional bruised fingers or Hannah goes awry during your chiseling and so on. You'll also know that if you choose to become a painter, you'll become a truly mediocre painter, with slightly less bruised fingers than you'd have if you'd become a sculptor, slightly more physical pleasure in life, less physical pain. You also know that apart from these differences, each life will for you be the same. Okay. So you won't actually feel dissatisfied about being mediocre any more than you feel dissatisfied about uh, being great. If this was the choice that faced you, I think we'd all agree that the physical pain of a few bruised fingers would be outweighed by the greater good of your being a truly great sculptor. And not just outweighed for others, it would be outweighed for you. You're being a great sculptor, even though it would be uh, meaning that you will be someone who'd suffer from the uh, physical pain of an above average number of bruised fingers, your being a truly great sculptor would be a better life for you to lead than your being an average painter with a lesser number of bruised fingers, lesser amount of physical pain. So the good of being a truly great sculptor is a greater good than the evil of a few extra bruised fingers is a bad. But being a great sculptor isn't a physical pleasure which can be straightforwardly weighed against the physical uh, pain of bruised fingers. So though there's a sense in which being a truly great sculptor compensates for the physical pain of some extra bruised fingers, this is a sort of compensation that can't be represented as an outweighing on some common scale. Now, one could in principle become a great sculptor without bruising any fingers. And even if it never happens in practice uh, that one ever does become a great sculptor without bruising fingers, it's not the bruising of the fingers that makes one a great sculptor anyway. It's having a set of skills which one's developed whilst, as a matter of fact, bruising a few of one's fingers along the way. So let me suppose for a moment, though, that actually having had a few more than average bruised fingers is necessary uh, for your being a great sculptor, because in fact you just can't hold your tools properly unless your body has in some sense instinctively blurted out by bruising its fingers more than most or some such. If some reason like that did obtain, then having bruised fingers would be an accompanying feature of the only means to the end. In that case then, we'd say that the good end of being a, a, a truly great sculptor would justify or compensate for the bad accompanying feature of the only means to it. If you knew this in advance, then when you set out to become a great sculptor, you'd foresee, but not intend, uh, the bruised fingers that would accompany you, you uh, your trade. 
accompany the means to the good end that you've nationally set yourself. So, uh, as an example, I'm hoping serves to illustrate the point then that a certain good end can compensate for a certain evil, but this compensation needn't be a matter of giving one a greater amount of the same sort of thing that the evil has deprived one of, and that it can compensate for a foreseen but unintended additional consequence of the own means uh, to the uh, good. Okay, now consider the following uh, situation. You are a teacher in charge of a group of school children at playtime. We've established, at least to my satisfaction, that it isn't itself good for these children to have freedom. And that being so, you stand in the corner of the playground and let them invent and play their own games with one another, rather than ceaselessly intervene so as to organise them. Now and again, then you notice that some of the children are choosing to use the autonomy that you just generated or allowed to invent games which involve some of them suffering to some limited extent. Some of them are just naturally stronger than others and use this fact to their advantage at the expense of others, for example. Let's uh, think in more detail of an example. So let's suppose that one of the smaller children is chosen by mob rule to be piggy in the middle for some game. And this is a role which is considerably less fun than the other roles, indeed, and involves positive suffering. The child thus chosen suffers to some extent as a result of your system. Perhaps the child's character is developed in helpful ways by this sort of suffering, but perhaps it's not. And let's suppose that it's legally We may say then that this child's suffering is not in itself a means to a greater good that compensates uh, the child for it. You watch this happen. You maintain your distance. You do not intervene. Such eventualities are, after all, a foreseen, albeit unintended, consequence of the laissez-faire system that you've adopted, a system which you judge to be overall better for the children than you're constantly intervening, for it allows them freedom to affect one another in important ways, more important ways than if you intervene more often. Have you done anything long, wrong excuse me, in allowing this to happen? Well, I suggest the answer to this question depends in part on how much suffering the child has actually undergone. If the game would allow the children autonomy to develop had been a William Golding-esque uh, game of Piggy in the Middle, involving the Piggy in the Middle ultimately being killed, well then obviously you should have intervened. You'd have done something wrong in allowing the children in your charge to have that much freedom and power over one another. If, on the other hand, the suffering was of a relatively minor sort, a sort which would all be forgotten about within five minutes or so, at the end of uh, break time and the start of the next lesson, well, when it strikes me, the answer is that you wouldn't have done anything wrong in taking this laissez-faire attitude in allowing this child to be a victim to the extent that he or she was. So our question must be, what determines how much evil is justifiable for you to allow victims of the system as under your control to suffer? I suggest that there are two relevant factors. Firstly, it depends on your capacity to provide appropriate compensation for those who are victims of your system. If it's within your power to give to any victim of your system enough goods to compensate them for their suffering, well, that makes it more morally justifiable for you to allow them to suffer to the extent that you do, but if it's not within your power to give them this compensation. If you know that you'll not be able to compensate a victim of your system for the suffering that they've undergone, that would make you less morally justifiable in allowing them to suffer to the extent that you do. And that's, I suggest, why we think that no teacher should allow children uh, within their power enough freedom to kill one another, because there's no uh, amount of post-playtime conversation that a teacher can give to a dead child for his or her having been a victim of the system in that way. For the child will no longer be there uh, to be compensated. Of course, if a teacher had the capacity to raise children from the dead, that constraint would be. <coughs> Secondly, it depends on whether or not the people in question have refused to participate in the system. 
If knowing the sort of laissez-faire attitude you are going to adopt, the children can all agree to be participants in the system with the risks inherent in it, well, that would make you more morally justifiable in subjecting them to that laissez-faire system. Conversely, if hearing of the sort of system you were about to adopt, a particular child had asked you if he or she couldn't stay inside this playtime and not go out and be subjected to these risks, well, that would make you less morally justifiable in throwing that child out into the playground anyway. Let me leave those two factors on the table for a moment and turn to consider things from the child's perspective. Imagine now then that rather than being a teacher of your child, on arriving at school one day, you're greeted by the headmaster. He tells you this. Today, the headmaster says, is a special day. You have a choice of which playground to play in. There are a number of playgrounds. In each playground, the supervising teacher will adopt a certain level of the laissez-faire approach. In playground one, it's zero. Each child is completely controlled in their every movement by teaching assistants who guide the children's limbs inside the cotton wool suits that they wear. There's no freedom whatsoever. But then again, of course, nobody ever suffers to an extent as a result of the autonomy of others. Playground 1 guarantees those children who reside in it that they won't be victims of the system to any extent whatsoever. In Playground 2, there's a little bit more freedom. Every 10 minutes, each child is taken out of their cotton wool suits and allowed 10 seconds in which they can act as they wish. There are thus, to some extent, victims of the system in Playground 2. Occasionally, one of the children uses their autonomy to punch another child himself. Playground 3 has a bit more autonomy, thus offers a bit more danger of suffering than does Playground 2, and so on up the scale. There's another feature of this meta-system that we're running today, says the headmaster. Each victim will be compensated for any suffering after playtime is over. So those who've been in Playground 1 will get no compensation they don't need it. But some of those who've been in Playground 2, by contrast, will have been victims of the system, and thus they will need to, and they will indeed get what they need, compensation. But on average, they won't get as much compensation, of course, as those who've been victims of the system in Playground 3 and so on. But the important point here, though, is that no child, whichever playground they've signed down for, will leave school at the end of the day, having suffered in a way which he or she will think has not been adequately compensated for. So you thank the headmaster for apprising you of this uh, meta-system, and you consider which playground you'll sign yourself down to, to, to be put into. Is the only playground it would be rational for you to choose to play in playground one? Well, it seems to me that the answer to that is no. If there's going to be post-playtime compensation for all, then it seems quite rational to choose another playground. A playground where you get some of the good of freedom that you don't get in playground one, albeit with accompanying risks. But after all, if the risks don't pay off in the short term for you individually, then it's going to be compensated for you in the end. It seems to me then that the answer one gives to the analogous question, is the level of freedom we enjoy in this life worth it, depends entirely on the probability one is previously assigned to the theistic claim that there's an afterlife. But if so, given our criteria for good arguments, one can't have a good argument from evil to the falsity of theism if my earlier claim is right that theism entails it as a heavenly afterlife for all of us. If one's asked by one's host at a dinner party whether one would like to try a dish that is certainly different from anything else uh, one might have later and that some people enjoy even though others violently dislike, one's answer might reasonably depend on whether the dish is being offered to one as an option for the hors d'oeuvre or for the main course. If one's told that it's an option for the starter and one's assured that the taste, if it is found to be unpleasant, will be washed away very quickly by the drink accompanying the main course, well, uh, and, um, what would be more reasonable uh, in accepting it? If, on the other hand, one's, uh, one's told the dish is an option for the main course and there will be no dessert, one would be more reasonable in refusing it. 
It's not that one would be more risk averse, just that the risk would be greater in relative terms for what it was relative to would be smaller. Similarly then, if one sees the suffering of this world as a prelude to the infinite afterlife of perfect fulfilment in God's presence, the chance to enjoy a freedom that we won't be able to enjoy when directly exposed to God in heaven will be judged worth the suffering that accompanies it. However, if one sees this world as all that there is, one's judgment will gradually differ. It seems then that the mere existence of evil cannot be taken as in itself evidence against the existence of the theistic God, for it would only be so on the hypothesis that there is no compensating after, afterlife. I have this, which is false on theism, precisely because of God's omnipotence and perfect goodness. So the problem of evil can't be a problem. Now, sadly, this conclusion is a little bit too hasty. The first condition that would justify God in creating this sort of world, viz. that he, we can all be compensated in an afterlife for our sufferings, might be met. But what about the second? Uh, there's a crucial difference between my headmaster analogy, someone might point out in our case. God didn't ask any of us uh, before we were born uh, whether he would mind being put into the world that he was going to create for us. The headmaster, as it were, didn't ask us to choose a play band at the start of our school day, respect our judgment, allocate us accordingly. The headmaster, as it were, just threw us into the playground, uh, this one. Someone might object then that even accepting that God can provide all of us with sufficient compensation for our sufferings in an afterlife, the second condition isn't met. God didn't ask us beforehand if we'd be willing participants in the system he was about to create, if we were willing to run the risks. That's a crucial disanalogy between God and the headmaster case. I think it is indeed true that there is this crucial disanalogy, um, but there's another disanalogy which is even more crucial if you will. God couldn't, of logical necessity, have asked us in advance of our existence whether or not we'd be willing to take the risks that our existing in the world would entail for the simple reason that we didn't exist in advance of our existence. Does this let him off the hook, as it were, morally speaking, with regard to the second condition? Can we find an analogy to guide our intuitions here? I think we can. The analogy is of a choice that I imagine most of us in this room will face at some stage in the future, if we have to face it already, the choice of whether or not to have children. Ours is a world where there is a significant risk that any children we bring into it will be victims of the system. We can't guarantee the system is overall worthwhile, or that while they, uh, or even guarantee that they're going to get enough compensation if they're victims of it. We can't ask our children before they're born whether or not they're going to be born into the world on these terms. Nevertheless, we do not generally regard ourselves as under a general obligation not to have children. We certainly don't regard ourselves as under an obligation not to have children simply because we can't ask them in advance of having them whether or not they're willing to be born. So I conclude that God's not of logical necessity being able to act as the headmaster does and ask us in advance of our existence whether or not we're prepared to take risks of existence with entail, does let him off the hook, as I put it, morally speaking, with regard to the second condition. So I suggest that if the sufferers in the system are indeed going to be compensated for their suffering, and if, were they to have been fully informed beforehand, they would have reasonably chosen to participate in it, for they would have seen that overall the system which entails their suffering is worth it. But one's not able to ask them beforehand as they get to be created. One is morally justified in creating such a system. If this is right, then God's perfect goodness allows him to create new persons with all sorts of evils in them. The only thing his perfect goodness prevents God from doing is creating a world of creatures who suffer to an infinite extent at any given time, or a world of creatures such as Tantalus or Sisyphus who are destined to suffer for some finite extent but for an infinite uh, amount of time. 
an infinite amount of suffering that can never be compensated, of course, even by God, either as regards the individual or over the system as a whole. But it's obvious that ours is not a world in which creatures can suffer to an infinite extent at a given time, or one in which there are mortal creatures destined to suffer forever. Well, perhaps it's not obvious that it's not the latter, but we've certainly no reason to believe that it's family uh, immortals uh, have you ever met uh, who are suffering. Fabulous and Sisyphus like. Not many, I'm guessing. This is, of course, another reason to reject a traditional doctrine of everlasting hell, by the way. On theism, as I've argued, after our finite lives here, an infinite life in heaven awaits us. For every creature who suffers, there will come a day when they say that as individuals their suffering has been more than adequately compensated for, and on which they will be able to see how their suffering fitted into a larger whole which was overall worth it. So I suggest that on theism, there will come a day when even those who are broken on the wheels of the machine as they turn will thank God for it. Herodotus tells a story of a conversation between the barbarian despot Xerxes and a general in this despot's court about his Xerxes' plans to invade Greece. Xerxes asked the general how many men he thinks the Greeks would need to be able to muster before they would get to him in battle. And the general replies with a question of his own, which I think is rather illustrative of the culture of barbarian despots' court. In that he asked Xerxes whether Xerxes would prefer an answer that will please him or whether he would prefer the truth. And Xerxes replies, as I imagine the conversation rather icily at this point, that he wants the general to tell him the truth. And so the general says this If the Greeks have 100,000 men, then 100,000 will fight you. If they can only muster 10,000 men, then 10,000 will fight you. And if they can only find 10 men, then 10 will fight you. Now, Xerxes can't believe this, for he plans to invade Greece with the largest army that the world had at that stage seen. If the Greeks had been under the armed control of the tyrant, such as himself, he reasons, then perhaps they might have gone forward against him, even against impossible odds, from their fear of that tyrant and acting under his lash. But these Greeks, he said, are free men, and freedom is surely the end of discipline. The general listens to this and replies again. But the Greeks are indeed free, but that is only because... They act under a master whom they respect more than they could ever fear any tyrant. This master is their duty. This they listen to, and this they obey. And what it commands is ever the same, never to retreat in the face of barbarism, rather if possible to advance against it, however great the odds may be, and in any case, never to break ranks, but always to stay firm in their ranks, and conquer or die. A world without evil would be a world where we never needed to fight, never needed to sacrifice or risk anything, because it would be a world where there was never anything worth fighting, worth sacrificing, or risking things for. A world with terrible barbarians is a world where there are people who are worth fighting. And it's thus a world where it's open to us to choose either to go forward into battle against them, like free Greeks, or meekly acquiesce to them, as would the craven slaves of a barbarian despot. Would life without any evils at all be better than a life filled with such desires and choices? Sorry. It would certainly be easier, but then life in Playground 1 is easier than life in another Playground. Yet Playground 1 is not the only reasonable choice. Would life with more terrible evils than there are in our world, and thus more such terrible choices, be better than a life with less evils, but of course less freedom as a result? Is Playground number infinity the only reasonable choice? As one goes up in Playground numbers, one gets more and more of this uh, sort of freedom, but of course one gets more and more evil as a result. But if this evil will ultimately be compensated for, 
that as freedom is a good, it might seem that one should say, yes, play by infinity is the only rational choice. However, in fact, here that analogy breaks down because there is no play by infinity with God might have created. Of logical necessity, any world God could have created would have been one with a finite amount of freedom and thus suffering. For as discussed in the previous lecture, God is the only infinitely free being that can be. So it is that if theism is right, God was faced with this choice to create nothing, to create a world with no freedom but no suffering, heaven straight away, or to create a world with a finite amount of freedom and thus suffering and then heaven later. That our experience gives us reason to believe that if God exists, then he's chosen the latter, does not, I suggest, give us any reason, any reason at all to think that he doesn't exist. <coughs> well, that's what I say. Do have a glance at the material at the top of the cautionary note on handout. So I conclude that the argument from the existence of evil to the non-existence of God cannot be rendered as a good deductive argument, nor can it be rendered as a good inductive argument, nor again does evil even inductively support the claim that there is no God. The occurrence of evil in the world provides us with no reason whatsoever to think that there is not a God. What does it provide us with reason to think? Just that we're not in heaven yet, we've got important work to do. Before I finish this week, I want to take a moment to sum up what I've established in these lectures today. And I think I've got time for that, and still the plenty of time for questions. So I started my investigation by arguing that the concept of God shared by the monotheistic religions is coherent. The claim there is a God is the claim there is a being who is personal, incorporeal, or as I preferred it, transcendent, omnipresent, or as I preferred it, imminent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, perfectly free, and perfectly good. He created the world, he's revealed himself to us within it, he's a source of moral obligations for us, and he offers us eternal life. Indeed, I suggest that we'll give each of us an eternal life in heaven. I suggest that whilst there are some conceptual difficulties surrounding these divine attributes, they're not by any means insurmountable. But the claim that there is a God is, even I argue, a relatively simple claim. It could be true, it could be false. Having done that, then, I went on to look at whether or not there are any reasons for believing it's true, and whether or not there are any reasons for believing it's false. I first argued that the ontological argument and the cosmological argument don't provide us with any reasons at all for thinking that it's true, that there's a God. I argued that the fine-tuning version of the design argument does provide us with good reason for believing there's a God, and I argued that the argument from religious experience and from reports of apparent miracles might provide us with reasons for thinking that it's true, that there's a God. None of the reasons could, even in principle, I argued, constitute a good argument for the existence of God in the sense of an airtight uh, proof that there was a God, but I argue they could, in principle, perhaps in isolation, or perhaps only in combination, constitute good arguments or a good argument for the existence of God in the sense of making it more probable than not that there's a God. I have to leave my conclusion as to the worth of some of these arguments as a good, in principle, type of conclusion, as whether or not the argument did in practice provide these reasons was something I argued that would depend on whether or not the right sorts of experiences and testimonies were forthcoming, something which was beyond the scope of my lectures, really, uh, to establish being purely empirical matter, although I did actually then speculate and hazard a little bit about what empirical research would uh, reveal. <coughs> this week I went on to look at what I called the one remaining argument against the truth of the claim that there's a God, the problem of evil, and I called it one remaining argument, even uh, though I had explicitly addressed other arguments prior to now, because I in my first lectures I effectively counted arguments that would seek to show that there couldn't be a God because the concept of God was incoherent. And I stated that the argument that the mere existence of the universe would be reason to suppose that there wasn't a God uh, was manifestly impossible. So I argue that the problem of evil, although confrontation powerful, does not in fact provide us with any reasons for thinking that it's false that there's a God. 
do look at the quarterly note. There's a slight little caveat to that. Now, of course, many philosophers would disagree with much of what I've said. Uh, some would disagree with all of it, perhaps. Maybe some of the definitional claims they run. Be that as it may, if my argument today has worked, I'm in a position to conclude that there are good reasons to believe that there's a God, and that there are not any good reasons to believe that there's not a God. The belief that there's a God is one we have more reason for having than we have for rejecting. But to what extent have more reason? Perhaps only slightly more reason. But if it's just slightly more probable than not that there's a God, so as a result of all these arguments weighing in the balance, you should conclude, mm, yeah, the probability that there's a God is somewhere above the 50-50 mark. If that's where we're going to get to, is that going to be enough to ground a truly religious belief in God? Well, I think that it is, and next week I'll tell you why. Finishing up my lectures then by exploring the relationship between having the belief that there is a God and having faith in God.